the privilege that's ours, as has already been expressed in some of the words of these songs and also in some of the expressions in that prayer, as well as the words that Gary mentioned during the announcement portion, all of which perhaps appreciate in us the opportunity that's ours to sing these songs, to offer these prayers, as well as to spend a moment, a few moments, and give some thought to portions of the Word of God. It is so often a matter of great interest to appreciate the number of passages that remind us of the leadership and the guidance, the direction in life that the Bible provides. It still is true, isn't it, from Jeremiah 10, 23, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. If it's not in ourselves, how thankful we can be that the Scriptures provide that necessary guidance. As you well know, through these Sunday evening lessons, as well as the case during the Sunday mornings as well, we have made the chore, the challenge, the charge for ourselves this year to give thought on each Sunday to passages we've together read the previous week. This morning's lesson was taken from Matthew chapter 12, tonight's from Job 21. This past week, you and I have devoted a number of days to reading throughout the book of Job. It is true tonight our lesson will be devoted from that book, and I would invite you to think with me for the next few moments about some powerful truths that the book of Job has in store for us. As you notice some of the statements on this slide, the book of Job has often been a matter, a book, in the scriptures among the 66 that are found that has occasioned no small amount of difficulty and no small amount of controversy. There are some who, looking upon the book, have argued that the book is far too contentious. It raises more questions than it answers. Others assert with no shame in their face at all that this book is a problematic book. It is a book that causes one to scratch his or her head. What is it trying to say? As you and I have thought about that book upon reading it, tonight we shall attempt to give thought to the greatest issue that it seems to raise and one that has been the source of some great amount of difficulty. The central and key idea of this book is the problem of human suffering. It is the issue surrounding that thought and the matter to which it touches. It is the very character of this book that many have raised as, in their mind, a proof that there is no God. If there really is a God, they'd say, how could He allow a righteous one who claims to serve Him suffer like this man did? You and I will wrestle with that as we proceed through this lesson and perhaps even a part of next Sunday evening as well. Suffice it to say, those bottom statements... Though some have denied the book, and though others wish to avoid it, it's in the sacred canon for your benefit and for mine, and I would invite you to turn to it then with me as we proceed to look with interest at the features concerning the man Job himself. As we start the book, or as we start the lesson, I should say, we would do well to remind ourselves of the station in which this man found himself. Job, after all, literally did live. That, by the way, is one of the approaches that some choose to try to use to avoid the difficulty. They claim Job was just a myth. Job really didn't exist. He was just a made-up figure in a story told by somebody a long time ago. But that isn't so. There really was a man named Job. He was the greatest man of the East. He lived in that arena of us. You'll notice that this opening chapter highlights for you and me the character of this man. 
we do remember that several times he's mentioned in the, in the Bible. In Ezekiel 14, 14, he along with Noah and Daniel are all said to be powerful examples of faithfulness to God. That doesn't sound like he was just a made-up figure. In James 5, verses 10 and following, you and I in the New Testament are reminded about the patience of Job and the benefit and the perseverance that, that allows us to well understand. Maybe in light of all of that, let's revisit then Job chapter 1 for just a moment. In that chapter, we learn easily that this man Job was rather wealthy. In terms of one who lived so long ago, you'll notice that he had 7,000 animals listed at the outset of verses 2 and 3. In particular, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels. 500 yoke of oxen, and in addition, 500 female donkeys. You and I have often noted that animals like camels were exceedingly valuable in the ancient arena. And animals like oxen were as much so, and yet look at how many of these Job had. He was a wealthy, very wealthy man. You'll notice beyond that he was blessed in that he was married and had ten children. Seven boys and three girls. Perhaps, though, the greatest thought of all is the one that rests in verse 1. You'll notice that he was perfect and upright. Furthermore, he feared God and eschewed evil. What a tremendous listing of descriptives. He was perfect and upright. You'll notice those both words have reference to the godliness with which his character was described. It has reference to the nature of the kind of integrity that was descriptive of him. Upright. Furthermore, he feared God. He attempted to devote the proper interest, the proper direction, the proper fortitude in life to the very God of heaven. And you'll notice the verse closes by saying he eschewed evil. That means turned away from it had nothing to do with it, avoided it. The same kind of matter encouraged of you and me in 1 Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearance of evil. To this point, you and I can well see that Job was a highlight character of faithfulness in the ancient long ago. It is true, as you think about the placement of our reading, we're reading it, and yet we haven't even finished Genesis. It would appear from all that's presented to us in the book of Job that he actually lived in the period of time prior to the law of Moses. In other words, he lived in the arena about the time perhaps of Abraham. And hence, as we read this book, we see a gentleman who in verses 4 and 5 of chapter 1 himself offering sacrifices, which of course only the priests could do under the law of Moses. For those reasons, you'll appreciate that chapter 1 rapidly brings before us the following train of events. Verses 6 and following, On a certain day the sons of God presented themselves before the God of heaven. Apparently this was a description of those angelic beings that appeared before God for a, ma for a means of reckoning, a means of consideration. And we notice that oddly enough amongst the number was this deceptive one, this one who himself was the diabolical enemy. Isn't it amazing that a conversation ensues and it's God that starts it? Hast thou considered my servant Job? 
Here was God making mention of Job before the very halls of heaven, and in particular before the very appearance of those who had made their way before him. Isn't that an astounding thought? Here's a gentleman. Of all the characters of earth, God made mention of him. Have you considered his faithfulness? Have you considered his uprightness, his dedicated devotion to me? I suppose it would often be a good thing to consider, have you and I been mentioned by God in a way like that? Has God mentioned my name or yours as an example of faithfulness, as an example of uprightness, and as an example of one who would never err or veer from His side? I would hope all of us could feel confident in that regard. But isn't it amazing? Job was mentioned. Satan immediately questions, though, Job's earnestness. God, you do realize, and I'm paraphrasing, He's only serving you because you've blessed Him so much. He's only serving you because you have built a wall of hedge about Him, and He serves you because it's to His benefit. It's not selfless sacrifice like you think. You remember that God says, All right, you can touch anything about Him, but you can't take His life. And there the diabolical one proceeds in verses 13 and following, to crush this gentleman Job, and he does it by way of tremendous and powerful ways like this. Isn't it amazing that several messengers one by one arrive almost at the same time, and you remember their messages. A messenger came on one particular day and brought Job the following piece of information. Job, verse number 13 and following, first of all, the Sabaeans fell upon the oxen. In other words, the oxen as well as the donkeys. They were in a particular area. These foreign peoples came, the Sabaeans, actually out of that arena of the nation of Sheba. They came, fell on them, and take them away. You'll notice another messenger almost at the same time. Verse 16, the fire of God fell upon the sheep and upon the servants, and they are no more. No sooner had that happened, another messenger came. Verse 17. This messenger brought this piece of news. The Chaldeans came. That verse brings before us, they took the camels as well as the servants. Finally, you'll appreciate one more servant arrived, another messenger who brought this rather disturbing piece of news. The house in which your children were feasting and celebrating. A strong wind came, and the house fell, and they were all killed. Can you imagine a day like that? To have that kind of news shared with you one after the other in almost shotgun fashion. You've lost all your possessions and your children, all ten of them gone. Perhaps that would be enough to crush a lot of people. Perhaps it would be enough to cause them to throw up their hands and cry out, God, why? And to curse God to His face. In fact, Job's wife in Job 2 verse 9, she actually said, curse God and die. She had enough of it. Hard to believe that that would be her advice, but that's what the Scripture records. In light of all of that, aren't you and I amazed as we read verse 21 of Job chapter 1? In the face of these catastrophes, in the face of these losses, Job was able to say, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. 
no doubt one of the finest expressions of faithfulness under duress to be found anywhere in the Bible. As Job uttered those words, you notice that the previous verse said, Job arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down upon the ground, and worshipped. Perhaps among other things, that teaches us a simple lesson of the vitality of worship. Sometimes we in this world might be tempted to allow things to interfere with worship. Sometimes under great loss, sometimes under great duress, in spite of those things, Job worshipped. Maybe you and I can learn how needful our spirit is to be in the presence of God in worship and to find in that place the solace, the exhortation, and the encouragement that we need in this life. Perhaps in light of all those things, we come to the bottom of that slide and we appreciate that Job had three friends who came his way with an attempt, it would seem, to offer encouragement or at least to help him address this matter that was now facing him. As these friends arrived at the closing part of verse number 2, we learn that for seven days, for one entire week, they sat and never spoke a word. Sometimes you and I also learn how powerful it can be for the presence of those we love. Maybe they don't have the words to say. Maybe under the condition in which we are, they don't know what to say. But isn't it still sometimes true, the fact they're there? The fact they're there for support does mean such a great deal. And so it is that as chapter number 3 opens, we find finally words of expression. And those words bring us to the following. As we begin to look in somewhat brief character at chapters 3 and onward, I would perhaps preface that with this comment. The issue that is so troubling throughout the book of Job is really this one, isn't it? It's the issue of knowledge. Here, God knew the whole character about the circumstances surrounding the trial of Job. God knew all along about the conversation with this diabolical one. But Job didn't. Job was not given any information about that whatsoever. All he knew was all of these things had happened to him. He didn't know why. He didn't know anything about the conversation. And yet, we find in verse number 3 some statements that Job makes. And I've tried to highlight just a few of them. Job, in no uncertain terms, expressed the grief and the difficulties that now had come his way. Although not many days before he had been so abundantly blessed, lavished and showered by gifts from God, he now expressed so powerfully and in some ways with such pathetic voice the nature of his grief. In chapter number 3 he even observes that in some ways the sadness that now characterizes his life is a reflection on what has come to pass. You'll notice beyond that in chapter 16... He even loathes the very nature that his life now exhibits. That loathing character brings him to make note of the brokenness and the bitterness that now characterizes him. That brokenness and that bitterness find expression in words like this. In Job 19 verse 20, this man admitted, I am barely hanging on to life. He was barely hanging on. Have you and I ever known of someone in that condition? Things for them, at least in their mind, have become so great and so mag magnitude in terms of character, they almost think that they are merely holding on. 
to them, Job would serve all of us as a great example. Not only that, you'll appreciate that his friends were of no help, really. I find it intriguing that his family and others had abandoned him. Have you ever felt abandoned? Those who you thought would never stray from your side, and yet circumstances develop, other associations come to pass, and ultimately they're the very ones who turn their back upon you. Have you ever felt abandoned? Here was a man that could testify that I know how you feel. We even learned earlier his wife didn't stand by him either. He was literally alone, and as we're about to see, the friends weren't much encouragement either. Job was battling the whole character of association with God almost by himself. You'll notice as we come to the next statement, what could be said about some of these friends? Their names are given. Eliphaz is the first one. Eliphaz appears to have been a gentleman who was able to speak with some eloquence. Here are some of the things that he told Job. Imagine now that you're in the condition Job found himself, and suppose you had a friend who told you this. You silly and deceived man. You're foolish. You are acting without wisdom. Furthermore, you realize, Job, that the innocent do not suffer the way you're suffering. The only logical and analytical conclusion must be this. You by some means have erred, and this is God's chastisement for you for what you've done. Talk about a direct statement. Eliphaz has exactly laid it before us. He accused Job of speaking it himself in voicing matters in an unwise fashion, explicitly found in Job 15.2. One last statement that seems so terribly intriguing. Eliphaz affirmed directly, Job, you do realize you're not the first person who's ever suffered. You need to be wise, turn yourself to God, and all of this will come to pass far better for you. Those statements of Eliphaz, of course, challenge us in so many ways, and they challenge Job, as you can well imagine. Another friend was named Bildad. He too, as it came his turn to speak, he addressed Job, and here were some of the things that he brought to Job's attention. Bildad accused Job of being a hypocrite. You yourself are admitting to us that there is no falsehood or evil as you've caused it, but Job, there must be. And you are really a hypocrite for claiming one thing but living a different way. You claim to be pious and godly and righteous, and you claim to fear God, and you claim to have led your children as you ought to have done, but yet you didn't. This is clear-cut evidence you didn't. You'll notice that Bildad went on to say that you have forgotten God, and by acting the way that you are, you are being presumptuous. You are exalting yourself above the very nature of what God would have you to be. You are exalting yourself above God. This second friend, too, has been exceedingly direct, hasn't he? You again can imagine, in light of those words, we now come to the third friend, whose name was Zophar. Zophar, just as the other two had. He even went so far to raise the bar just a little bit by saying, Job, quite frankly, God has been better to you than what you deserve. You ought to have been in worse shape than what you are. That'd be tough to take, wouldn't it? 
having suffered the way he was, and for a friend to tell you, quite frankly, it should have been worse. And that's what Zophar had the nerve to say. As you look at the wording found in Job 11 verse 2, Job was, or rather Zophar was quick to admit that this matter of suffering is such that the wicked themselves may suffer, but you'll notice any type of blessing or prosperity that the wicked enjoy, it's only for a limited time. Job, you had your good time. Things were going well with you, but now these calamities and these difficulties testify that you, in fact, are greatly evil. Talk about three friends. As these friends have, bought the, have brought those pieces of information, Job himself, in characterizing them, admitted they didn't bring that which was illuminated. Job, in fact, accused them, you are not speaking rightly. The three, the three friends, he said, you are the ones not speaking correctly. And as you come near the close of that slide, you observe that Job even prophesied that they, you, the friends, will be reproved. We'll have to hold on till this week's reading to see that, for that won't come until chapters 41 and following. But when it does, how overwhelming it will be, and it will, of course, testify to the rightness of Job all along. May it be, then, in light of those things, that we might devote what time remains this evening to some observations about the statements that they made, the statements that Job made, and how they can be helpful to you and to me even today. Among those observations, it seems, we certainly can begin with this one. Among the observations, we should be quick to say, Job did not deny that there were imperfections in his life. He did not for a moment claim that he was sinlessly perfect. He frankly admitted to these friends, I have made my mistakes. I have been guilty of matters that certainly were not ideal. It seems to me that by its very nature crushes that thought of presumptuousness of which he was accused. But doesn't that in fact remind you and I that if we are perfect and upright like Job was, we too would not for a moment try to lift ourselves to the point beyond where we really are. And doesn't it tell us that we too should be very frankly mindful of our own shortcomings. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. And isn't it still true that the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And didn't John, that famous writer, that apostle of love, say in 1 John 1 beginning in verse 8, that you and I should ever be mindful of the fact that he that saith, I have no sin, hath deceived himself, and the truth is not in him. So if you and I were then to claim sinless perfection or claim that we are far greater than what our sins would certainly tell, then we've lied to ourselves, we've lied to God, and we certainly know the truth would not be in us. You see, the only way that that sin can be forgiven is when we acknowledge it and repent of it and beseech God to forgive us through Christ appropriately. And so our first observation, just like Job, we should be ever mindful of those problematic matters, those sins in our lives, and strive, of course, to come to God and allow them to help us remove them. You'll notice another observation. Job's friends. 
Doesn't it seem so interesting to observe sometimes what those friends did say and sometimes that very hurtful way that they said it. Job again frankly admitted that his friends were miserable comforters. I think that's intriguing the way he said that. He to their face said, you are miserable comforters. They had come perhaps from far distances with an intent to assist, to help, to encourage. But Job said, you're doing a very bad job. Isn't it interesting that you and I as members of the body of Christ, we are described in ways like this in Romans 12, 15. We weep with those that weep. We rejoice with those that rejoice. We're told in Hebrews 10, 25, so interestingly, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as a manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. We often use that passage to remind us of the seriousness of attendance at the services, and that's entirely right. But may we never overlook that part of it that refers to the exhortation of each other. You and I as brothers and as sisters in Christ should seek to encourage, to exhort, to help one another on the pathway to eternal glory. You'll notice that Job's friends didn't do that very well. That does help us see that the ultimate and final help will be found, of course, in the Master Himself. He is that most dearest of friends, isn't He? He's the one that died for you and for me. He's the one that shed His blood for you and for me. And He's the one that's currently building mansions in the beyond here and He's wanting a room for you and me. That shows how much He wants us to be there with Him. Sometimes we too find that there isn't much help in what others offer. They may have good intentions and they may have the best of desire in that regard but sometimes they fall so far short. That dearest of friends that we find in God, in specifically the Son, should be a friendship that perhaps takes us back to one phrase in the Old Testament, there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. Proverbs 18.24 Maybe in light of that, a third comment is in order. This issue of suffering. The friends were under the impression that suffering meant evil. Suffering meant ungodliness. And if one was suffering, one must have been guilty of ungodliness. But such is not the case. You and I know that the wicked can enjoy prosperity, so too can the righteous. You and I know the wicked can suffer, and so too can the righteous. God pours forth His rain, if He please, both on the just and the unjust. Matthew 5.45 isn't it true that that very issue of the suffering that attaches sometimes to the faithful is a matter that ought not be used to dissuade us from faithfulness? If I suffer, that does not mean that God doesn't exist, and it does not mean that God doesn't love me. It means that there are features and factors sometimes brought about by the tempter himself and not God that have led to that. But may I and may you cling to God with utmost of devotion, knowing that just as it was with Job, things will work out for our betterment. That trust that's espoused in a statement like that does bring us to realize the reality of sin. For it is true that sin can bring pain, and it can bring difficulties, and it can have consequences that are very dire in this life. We each know that well. 
individuals, perhaps many who have taken in too many drinks. They then are involved in a car wreck and some innocent child dies. Or maybe some faithful child of God dies. Now that drunkard never thought about that. But oh, what consequences came to be. Sometimes the difficulty to find words to comfort a father and a mother in a case like that. I remember several years ago, a 16-year-old girl, a member of the church, killed in a car wreck. Her dad and mom had a difficult time, a struggle dealing with it as we can well imagine. But perhaps the book of Job does help us see that it was the sin of someone else and not the girl. It was the sin of someone else who may well have led to that. Didn't Jesus teach in John chapter 9? There was a man that was born blind, brought before the Master, and they on that occasion said, Master, who did sin, him or his parents? And Jesus on that occasion taught neither one. You can't directly conclude that just because this baby's born blind that the parents sin. You can't conclude something like that. We learn, though, that so often this issue of sin and the difficulties that attach to it bring us to realize another point that Job also made. In Job 14:1, man that is born of woman, we quickly observe that that very stay in this life is brief and it's characterized with sorrow. Man that is born of woman is a few days and full of trouble. Many of us have enjoyed good days, and oh, how thankful we ought to be for them, because there may well come times that are greatly different than that. Remember, Job had had many good days, but then it all changed. Could things change for you and for me? Could health problems come our way? Could other difficulties in family arrive? Could matters on the job site ultimately result in far more challenging times? Sure it could. And may the book of Job be one example of faithfulness no matter what. That faithfulness that you and I see perhaps challenges us with the text of Psalm 90 verse 12. David on that occasion uttered these words, Teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Numbering our days. All of us know we aren't going to be here permanently. We aren't going to be here perpetually. But as we number our days and then live wisely, what a great blessing and benefit to ourselves and to others we will be able to be. Additional thoughts and then the lesson will be yours. These additional thoughts surround what I've listed on this slide. The main matter that we find mentioned by Job more often than any other is the greatest and utmost desire of his heart, and that was simply this. He wanted to discuss with God about the case. He wasn't wanting to accuse God. He wasn't wanting, in fact, to question in a, in a negative way. He just wanted some answers. He wanted to have a conversation, a dialogue, if you will, so that God could discuss and they could have an understanding. That's rather amazing, isn't it? You'll notice Job wasn't ready to shake his finger at God and blame God, and yet many today do. Job wasn't ready to, in fact, strangle God and say, Why have you let this happen? He just wanted to explain. He just wanted to understand. If only you and I could be that mature. If only you and I could arrive at a point in life when even if those difficulties came our way, 
we'd be in a position of just wanting to have a conversation with God. It may well be that that conversation highlights, and as a part of that conversation, Job wanted then, if not him, he wanted someone who could plead his case before God. Someone who could be a mediator. Someone who, as he himself would use the word, be a daysman. Job 9.33. Notice Job wanted an advocate. He wanted, if you please, a prosecuting attorney, or rather an attorney who could be on his side, a defense attorney. In light of all of that, I would ask us to pause very briefly and consider how overwhelmingly blessed we are. For it still is true, isn't it, that you and I have what Job did not. We have an advocate. We have one who can plead our case and who overwhelmingly does so. I've asked you to consider passages like these in 1 Timothy 2.5. Now there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. One mediator, you and I have one. In 1 John 2, beginning in verse number 1, you and I learned there that the very word advocate is employed. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You and I have what Job so desperately longed for. Are we as thankful for our mediator as we should be? Do we employ his services as often as we should? Do we go to him in prayer just as he admonished us? Men ought always to pray and not to faint, Luke 18.1. You'll notice that we have that advocate, and may I suggest he's never lost a case. His record is perfect. And as long as you and I will appropriately employ his services again, we are guaranteed of positive result and guaranteed of the winning in the end. In light of all of that, Job knew of the general resurrection. Isn't it almost startling that there are individuals today who deny the resurrection? And here was a man who lived 4,000 years ago, and he knew about the resurrection. The closing five verses of Job chapter 19 describe the fact Job said he knew that there was coming a time when he would stand before the very great God. And even though his body would long since have been consumed by worms, I will stand before him at that day. Job knew about the resurrection. May I suggest that would be wise for you and I to ever keep in mind as well. And it's still affirmed for us in John chapter 11 as our Savior Himself came to the place of Martha and Mary after the passing of Lazarus. That good friend had died four days earlier. Jesus arrived. He came. He found Martha weeping. He found them, of course, overly in grief because of the death of their brother. And yet in that conversation that ensued, Martha knew about the resurrection. He said, I know my brother shall live again at the resurrection. Here was a person 4,000 years ago that knew of it. Here was a lady 2,000 years ago that knew of it. Isn't it still shocking that there are some today who willfully deny it? Oh, how sorrowful and regretful they shall be if they don't come to understand it better and repent thereof. That general resurrection is highlighted so often in the, in the, in the Corinthian letters. Perhaps as we think about the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, that's the resurrection chapter of the New Testament. And you and I know well that it proclaims and prophesies so beautifully about that great occasion.
One last thought brings us to the lesson text that Brother Eddie read earlier. In Job 21, verse 31, as Job there made a comment, he, in fact, addressing these friends, affirmed that they were declaring the way of God as if they knew more than God. They accused Job of being the exalted one and the one acting with presumptuousness, but Job said, you're the one speaking for God, and you're the ones accusing me of what's not true, and you're the ones who's putting words in God's mouth, and you're the ones who are declaring His way and doing so in error. It still is true, isn't it, that any human being that exalts him or herself above the proclamation of the Word of God has acted presumptuously and has acted declaring God's way in error. That error will come back to haunt these friends when we arrive at chapter 42. But for now, as we close that lesson, may we comment that there are many today who speak for God they tamper with what He's revealed. They've changed His plan of salvation, or so they think. They've changed the order of worship. They've changed the attitude and remark of the church. They've spoken for God declaring His way, and they've trampled underfoot the very truth of God. They'll rue the day that they ever did that. As we come to the close of this lesson, we only beseech then one and all to allow God to speak, and for you and I, as Job did, to be able to say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Job 13, 15. He would trust God no matter what. I hope that's descriptive of you and of me as well. And with that in mind, our lesson rapidly closes. And as we finish reading Job this week, next, Sunday, next Sunday's lesson will also bring to bear some of the features of this book. But isn't it sweet to conclude this lesson with this observation? Although we find the friends encouraging Job in light of sin, Job maintained a matter in faithfulness, and he was confident enough in his relationship with the God of heaven that he just wanted one to plead his case. Tonight, there is one to plead your case in mine. He's the very one that's the head of the church, Colossians 1.18. He's also its foundation, as we read in Acts 4.12. It is the case this evening... If you're not a member of the blood-bought body of Christ, why not? Why do you wait and delay? There's no finer moment than this one, and the plan of salvation is extended. You need to believe with all your heart that Jesus is the Son of God. Repenting of your sins, confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. If you have begun that walk with Him, but no longer are faithful, you perhaps have allowed the words of others to assist you in moving astray. Let the words that others have filled your mind with be put aside and come back to the one who died for you, the one who lives now for you, and the one who wants you to live with Him. 2 Corinthians 4.11 This very night, if we could be of assistance in praying with you and for you, let Job be an encouragement to you to be faithful no matter what. Why don't you begin that walk then as you come back to His side or rush to His side for the first time? And why not do it now while together we stand and while we sing?